Lord, we thank you so much for these questions. And we thank you, Lord, for your word being so clear that we worship uh, Father and Son and Spirit. And uh, uh, you are our God from all eternity. And we thank you, Father, for sending your Son to live the perfect life and to die on the cross for us. And we thank you, Jesus, for sending the Spirit that dwells with us. And, and through your word, we interface with you every day. We pray, Father, that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to actually um, try to finish up our discussion on the attributes of God. And then we're going to move into creation next week. And the question I sent you guys uh, in the email is, what does God learn from our prayers? What does he learn <clears throat> from our prayers? And uh, open up to Matthew 6. I think most of you would probably know the answer to this. And that is God learns nothing from our prayers. Um, which begs the question, so why do we pray? And Jesus deals with this somewhat in Matthew 6 <clears throat> as he's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. We'll look at verse 6 and following. But you, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly very interesting things that are being mentioned here go into your room and the father can hear your prayers when you're in the room and nobody else is there and what's interesting is jesus is acknowledging that the father can hear everybody's prayers who are privately in their room praying so that tells us something about his fatherhood his omniscience then verse 7, and when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard from their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. Your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Um, so pagans would pray the same thing over and over and over again, thinking that as they repeat themselves, that somehow they'll get through to their God. Um, we don't have to do that. We don't have to keep yelling and keep shouting. Um, we don't have to say the Hail Marys over and over and over again to be heard by God. We don't have to sing 10, you know, say 10, uh, our fathers, 15 Hail Marys, and then the Lord will hear our prayers. <clears throat> no, we can come and our father already knows what we're going to ask for even before we open our mouths. So then why even pray? I've had my children ask me this question. It, if God knows, then why should we even pray and let him know what we want? And I love Paul Miller's <clears throat> response to that basic question in a book called The Praying Life. On page 134, he says, All of Jesus' teaching on prayer uh, in the Gospels can be summarized with one word, ask. His greatest concern is that our failure or reluctance to ask keeps us distant from God. And that's a really insightful answer that the reason God wants us to come ask is not to inform him of things that he would not have known otherwise. He wants us to come ask so that we would draw close to him 
and that we would benefit from the relationship. Um, Again, remember, God doesn't need us, but we need him, and he bids us come and ask. And then as we reveal our hearts um, to him, we get a, a closer sense of his presence. So prayer is really something that's done on our behalf. Um, we pray as God draws us close. So let's let's take some of these concepts. We're going <clears> to <throat> roll through some of these attributes. We've been talking in this class so far about how that Christ and systematic theology, you can really divide up everything that Christ is doing on the earth through suffering and glory. Last week we talked about the simplicity of God, that God's not divided up into parts. He's not like different parts of the car. And we have to really even be careful about when we think of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's not like the Father has the judgment attributes. Jesus has the love attributes. And then the Holy Spirit has the comforting attributes. All of the characteristics of God apply to each person equally. And so that's what we part of what we mean when we talk about the simplicity of God. And then we talked about the Trinity last week. We've already done a little bit of review on that. I sent you guys some video, a video and also some notes to review the Trinity for you. Um, I don't think we showed this diagram last week, though. Let me see if. Uh, do you guys remember. This diagram, did I show this? Okay, so this is kind of a version of an ancient Christian diagram. This does better than just about any analogy I've seen. Uh, Most of the analogies that we try to give for the Trinity don't really work. They break down on some level. But here you have, you know, God is one. He's the creator. The Son is the creator. The Holy Spirit's the creator. The Father's the creator. It's very clear from Scripture that all three are involved in creation, and yet there's one God. And so we would say God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Spirit, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. That's a good summary conceptually of the Trinity. Um, People seem to understand the is part. What confuses people is the is not part. In fact, years ago, those of you guys that um, know uh, C28 or NOTW, they had put out a a T-shirt using this particular um, image and people were coming in complaining about the is not just like uh, I think Bill was implying earlier. Christians did not understand the is not part that the father is not the son. The son is not the spirit. The spirit is not the father, that there's a distinction between the persons. And so people were actually coming in on a regular basis, complaining about that shirt uh, because they didn't understand it. Um, and so that's, that's pretty important stuff. Let's apply this though, to other characteristics, perfections, attributes. Let's talk about God's omniscience. We're going to talk about, um, several of what we call the communicable attributes. Chris talked about incommunicable attributes. We talk about communicable. We're talking about things that we, what's a communicable disease. It's something that. You catch, yeah, you, you catch it from other people, right? So there's a sense in which there's certain attributes that are communicable. They're caught by us. God's created us to reflect his character and glory in certain ways. 
Other ways, we're never intended to be like God. Otherwise, we would try to be doing something like the devil said, I will be like the Most High. We don't want to try to be like God like the devil tried to achieve. We do want to be like God when God tells us, I want you to be like this. Like, you shall be holy as I am holy. That's a communicable attribute. Okay, we're called to be like that. Um, omniscience seems on the first blush that that's not communicable because none of us know it all, but we all have knowledge, right? So the, th- the attributes we're talking about, they're infinite for God and they're eternal for God, but they're finite for us and not eternal for us, okay? We haven't always had these things. We don't have, the, we don't have all of it like God has it, but we do have some aspect of it. So let's talk about God's omniscience, or his perfect knowledge. First John three twenty says God knows everything. He knows the past, the present, the future. Um, God knows what will happen. God knows what would happen if he were to allow other circumstances. You can write this down. Matthew eleven twenty one, where Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if... The mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So God knows what Tyre and Sidon would have done if they would have seen the type of miracles that these other towns saw. This is mind boggling when you really think about it. And 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 so God knows all things. But we also realize that Jesus knows all things. And the Holy Spirit knows all things. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.11. I'll just focus on the Holy Spirit here for a second. One of the reasons that we know that the Holy Spirit is God is 1 2 Corinthians 3.17 says he's God. He's the Lord. But also we see attributes of deity in the Holy Spirit. Let's look at uh, verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. The spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man, which is in him. So no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Um, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So the spirit is able to reveal to us all things. All things. Yes, the deep things of God. Now, just a, a, a sideline. I don't know that we were able to get into this last week. But when you see the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit paralleled in particular passages, many times the Father is referred to as God, the Son's referred to as Lord, and then the, the Spirit is referred to as Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, sometimes as Lord. And so that's just a pattern that you see. Some people get tripped up by this, especially Jehovah Witnesses. They'll see the Father being referred to as God uh, when the when the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are paralleled. But that's just the way Scripture speaks when you're talking about the three different persons of the Trinity. For God so loved the world that he what sent his Son. When you have each of the three persons paralleled, the Father is normally referred to as the head or as God. But the Bible doesn't even blink when it says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Bible doesn't blink in calling Jesus God and calling the Spirit God. But when all three are paralleled, the Father as the head 
of the of the of the triune God is referred to as God. This kind of gets into we won't we don't have time for this in this class. It gets into part of what we call the economic and the ontological aspects of the Trinity that there's one in essence, but they also behave differently in the world and with one another. There's different roles that each person of the persons of the Trinity has. Just by way of example, I wish we had more time to get into this, but um, the father sends the son. The son would never send the father. And that is essential to the Trinity. There's something about their relationship with one another where we would never say, well, why? How about the how about the son sending the father? No, the father sends the son. That's part of their relationship and their role. Um, and so if you guys want more about that, you can go ahead and email me, text me. But as far as the omniscience of God, we have the father being omniscient, the son, uh, the spirit, knowing all things, revealing even the deep things of God. We Jesus reveals to us that that there isn't even a sparrow that falls to the ground in Matthew 10 and God doesn't know about it. God knows every hair in your head. Some of us have more hairs in here than others. And God knows every single hair. I won't point out those who have more than others. Uh, but God knows that. And notice this, that there's every indication as we look at the scriptures and systematize that God's knowledge is not like ours. We learn things by observation and experience, right? Hopefully, I know more now than I did when I was 15. I think I do, right? But God never learns anything by observation or experience. God doesn't go throughout the universe and suddenly learn something new about Saturn. God's not questioning the age of the universe. He's not like, man, is it six literal days or are those figurative? I don't know. Yeah, how how long has that been? He, he there's no and there's never anything that he learns about you or me. Even when we do something in time, he's not like, whoa, I had no idea that Mike was going to do that. That's a surprise. No, he never learns anything by experience or observation. He knows our every thought before we think it. David, remember, talks about even before the word is on my tongue, you know it all. Uh, he has our days numbered. He's appointed our day of death. He's hemmed us in from behind and before. And so this this should give us great confidence that um, when we come to our Lord, he knows what we need. Jesus says in Matthew six, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after these things? Your heavenly father knows that you need them so you can be freed up to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. He knows everything that you need, everything that I need. And he's in the business of answering prayer. We started off by talking about prayer. Our prayers don't add any new information for him. God knows what we need, which means that we don't need to panic as if God's unaware of what we need. You know, I've I've just sent a son off to college. I've got another daughter that's graduating this year. And there can be the tendency of be like, what what's going to happen? I have no idea. Are these kids going to continue to follow the Lord? Are they going to go off the path? Are they going to get tripped up by the devil or are they going to walk in the power of the spirit? I don't know. But guess what? God knows 
all of this and I can cry out to him. Guess what? God has a lot more power in the heart of this young man that's about 90 miles away from me right now than I have. And when I recognize my desperation, I cry out to him. And when I recognize his power, I cry out to him and I trust him. If I think I've got all the power, then I pray less. If I realize he has the power, he has the knowledge, I pray more. So it seems counterintuitive. The more we recognize our weakness, our lack of knowledge, the more that drives us to prayer. So really our prayers are this. Our prayers are the humble petitions of weak, needy people to a wise, all-powerful, all-knowing God who delights to hear the needs of his children. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your God delights to hear your cries and, and that really we're just coming as weak, needy people to a God who's, who's all-wise, he's omniscient, he's powerful, He's knowledgeable. Yes, when you go into the privacy of your room, when you're driving in the car, nobody else can can hear you. God can hear you. And he knew what you were going to say before you said it. And he knew the circumstance that came into your life this week before you knew it would happen. And you can call upon him. He delights to hear the cries of his people. That should give, I don't know about you, that should give us great comfort. That's his omniscience, and it's true of the Father, it's true of the Son, it's true of the Spirit. Let's talk about God's truthfulness. It'd be one thing if God knew all things, but he was a liar, right? What if God was prone to tell lies, even white lies? Maybe God just isn't into to telling us what really is going on. Maybe God is just a flying spaghetti monster and he's pretending to be something else, right? Now, the Bible says God is truth. Proverbs 35, every word of God is pure. It is true. He is the shield to those who put their trust in him. So we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that every word of God is true? And in the parallelism of that proverb, it equates the word with God himself. It says he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. In other words, we can take refuge in a God who reveals himself truthfully. Do we believe that? If Do I believe that if I really give myself to his word, that it is true and that God will shield me through his word? The devil is in the business of telling lies. Satan will lie to you whenever he can to get you to distrust God. But Hebrews 6.18 tells us God cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. It's completely against his character. Psalm 119 verse 128. You can write this down. Psalm 119 verse 128. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right. I hate every false way. That's a good philosophy of life. If you just lived your life according to that philosophy, you'd be in pretty good shape. And so would I. Your precepts, your word, concerning all things, everything that it speaks about, 
I consider to be right. I'm just going to just decide right now, presuppositionally, this is right. And I hate every false way. And every false way is whatever contradicts God's word. If we do that, we're going to be in really, really good shape. Um, because God is truthful. Now, when we talk about the truthfulness of God, we're not talking that here's God and there's some ruler of truth next to God by which we measure him. So there's not some separate universal truth and we bring that ruler over next to God to see if God matches up. Now, the Bible presents God as the truth. Jesus says, I am the way I am. The truth, I am the life. We hear, we see the, we, the, uh, the Holy Spirit being spoken of as the spirit of truth. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aren't measured against any outside standard. They are the final standard. We know truth only by God himself. We measure ourselves against God and his word. We measure our thoughts. That's why we can confidently bring every thought captive to christ subjected to christ right and say christ is this right or is this wrong part of what this implies if god is the ultimate standard of truth and we're called to bring all of our thoughts captive to christ it means all of our thoughts are not true we have in fact human beings the bible says that the heart is desperately wicked above all things who can know it and when people become christians we do get indwelt by the holy spirit the spirit of truth but it's not like our depravity immediately departs we're rescued from the penalty of sin right power of sin's been broken i don't have to sin every day right but it does the presence of sin is not going to be eliminated until my death i think it's is it calvin i'm pretty sure it's calvin or luther um, it said that sin will, I will stop sinning when I'm in the cold earth, just like my beard will stop growing when I'm dead. As long as I am alive, my beard is going to keep growing. And as long as I'm alive, I'm still going to have a sin problem. So there's always reason for me to come back to the spirit of truth and, and check my thoughts. Is this right? Subject my thoughts. I think I've said this a number of times, but as a pastor, one of our main jobs in the church is to help convince godly people that they could be wrong. That's one of my jobs every week is to sit down with godly, godly people and to open up God's word to them and say, the Bible says, be careful that you are not deceived. Bring every thought captive to him. Let's take these thoughts captive to Christ and let's see if it's right. It's part of why we need the body. It's part of why we need the word. We need the Holy Spirit. And uh, the problem is, is you and I, just by our default setting, do we tend to think that we're wrong or do we default towards thinking we're right? We think we're right. <clears throat> you, when, I'm, when I'm having conversations with various people, I go into the conversation. If there's a difference of opinion, my default setting is I'm right. right? <laughs> I just kind of think I must be right in this conversation. But if I really understand who I am as a finite human being that I only am perceiving through these eyes and these ears, I could be wrong. I do have the Holy Spirit. I have his word, but I have to bring every thought captive and I've got to subject myself to you. I've got to subject myself to my brothers and sisters. Am I perceiving this rightly 
Or is it possible that I could even be duped by the devil? Yeah, Christians can even be deceived, right? We can be deceived. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he, what, fall. And so there's every reason for us to always be bringing bringing our stuff subject to the Lord. All right, so the truthfulness of God, he's all-knowing, which is great because he's also all-truth, and he's revealed truth to us. When he says he goes to prepare a place for us, he's, that's true. He's going to come back. He keeps his promises. That brings us to his wisdom. This has been one of my favorite attributes lately. God is wise. So he knows all things. He has control of all truth. But what if God was just foolish? Right? Have you ever met somebody um, that had a lot of knowledge? They just had a lot of knowledge. They'd done a lot of study. But they just had no idea how to apply it. In fact, they go out, even though they know the right thing to do, they go out and they're constantly doing the the wrong thing. I'll just tell you, like for me, I could go on the Internet. I could do a lot of study about construction, electricity, electrician stuff. I've gone on to study YouTube to do a lot of home repair type things. But just ask some people that know me. They would say, I'm a fool. I get the knowledge and then I go in and destroy things, right? Because there's something I didn't understand that these hands-on people, they just seem to know things. And when they're watching the YouTube videos, they just kind of, oh yeah, oh yeah, of course. But there's all this secret knowledge that they know that I don't know. And so I go in, I've got the wrong tool for the job. They're using some type of screwdriver. I'm like, well, I think I can use this. And then before you know it, I've cracked something and then I'm calling somebody else, right? All of us can fall into that, but God is not a fool. God is wisdom itself. He is wisdom personified. Let's look at a couple passages. Look at Proverbs 21 first. There's so many wonderful passages we could look at about God's wisdom, but 21 verse uh, 30 there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. I just love that verse. There's no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel against the Lord. In other words, if anything contradicts what God says, guess what? It's wrong. You can just take that to the bank. And every generation is going to have something else that it says that basically says the Bible's wrong. It happens all the time. When it comes, to, it can come to like various way, think, ways that we go about certain things. Something happens in the culture. All of a sudden, everybody's like, yeah, you know, the church has been doing this for so many years, but they're wrong. The Bible says this and, and you know, um, but it's wrong. Look at Isaiah 11. This is a killer passage because you see a, a, a Old Testament preview of the trinity isaiah 11 there shall come forth in verse 1 a rod from the stem of jesse a branch shall grow out of his roots this is messianic so this is looking forward to christ verse 2 and the spirit of the lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the lord So you've got 
the Messiah, the Messiah being prophesied, he's going to come being filled with the spirit of wisdom. Um, so you have father sending the son and him being filled with the Holy Spirit. Look over at first Corinthians one. This is probably in the New Testament. One of the most concentrated sections of scripture on wisdom. First uh, Corinthians. One thirty will say. But of him, this is talking about Christ, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification. Then you've got the Holy Spirit revealing all the deep things of God in chapter two. And um, if you take a look at. Let's look at 118, chapter 118, that same book. Yeah, so. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Just love the way the spirit through Paul is contrasting the world's so-called wisdom with God's wisdom. The world looks at God's wisdom and says, that's foolish. That's what the world does by default. God looks at the world's wisdom and says, that's foolish. And just to show you how I'm going to turn all this upside down in my wisdom, I'm going to do, I'm going to use a means that you think is the most foolish to get who you think is foolish saved. Not many wise, not many rich, so on or so I'm going to have some some really weak people run around and preach about Jesus Christ and him crucified that you think is offensive and the Jews don't like it either. But that's how I'm going to save people. I'm not going to save people who are the smartest, who have the most money, who can afford to go study all the books and learn all the languages and go to all the universities. I'm not going to save all those people. I'm going to save people who will believe with the heart of a child, the foolishness of a message preached that's how god's going to do it why so that he gets the glory and human beings don't in his wisdom that was the means he chose and so let's define the wisdom of god now with that in mind Um, wisdom is the practical use of knowledge when we apply it to god god's wisdom means that god always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals god always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. The way he chooses to get somewhere is always the right way. So we can look at the Bible. I think this is a very important hermeneutic for us as we're reading our scriptures. Do we come to the Bible with the assumption that God is wiser than you or I and and he has the best means to get things accomplished? Sometimes I'm reading through my Bible, to be honest with you, and I look at certain texts and I'm just like, why is God doing it that way? I just would not do it that way. That doesn't seem like the right way to do it. Why is God choosing one guy named Abraham? Say, I'm going to choose you and I'm going to make you a great nation. And then I'm going to allow you guys all to get become slaves over here in Egypt. You're going to be there for a while. Then I'm going to pull you out with mighty signs out of Egypt. 
and I'm going to bring you in to a land that I'm allowing to get more and more corrupt over several hundreds of years. I'm, allow, I'm going to allow the Canaanites, their wrath to fill up so much that it's going to eventually bubble over. And then I'm going to bring this unworthy people called the Jews to come in and annihilate city after city. And I'm going to give you their land, their property, their wells. And I'm going to get all the glory for it. There's times where I, I look at that plan. I'm like, was that the best plan that you could come up with, the Lord? That's the way you wanted to do it. And the thing is, is if we when you look at the grand scheme of what God's doing, I mean, you know, the Jews over and over again, they're they're rejecting the Lord. And they, there's this demonstration all throughout the Old Testament that they cannot keep the law. Then Jesus comes along. He keeps the law. The gospel gets presented to the Jew first. Many and most of the Jews reject the gospel. So then the gospel gets turned to us, the vast majority of us in here. I'm trying to look to see if I see my Jewish friends. Don't see to me. Um, And so then we get the gospel and then God begins to use us to provoke Jews to jealousy, to bring them back so that eventually all Israel will be saved. At least all true Israel will be saved so that God may be all in all. So that's this grand plan that Paul at the end of Romans 11 just basically just erupts and says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who first has given to him that it should be repaid to him. Right. Which of us can say, uh, you know, there's a part of me in my flesh. And this is a, a wicked part of me, if I'm really honest, that wants to sit God down and say, God, let's have a talk here. Your means of going about the salvation thing. Uh, you know, I was reading Lee Iacocca the other day, and it's not the best way to win friends and influence people. There's a lot of other ways that you could have got the job done without choosing this guy named Abraham out here in the middle of the desert somewhere. And then doing what you did through Isaac and Jacob. Boy, that was a mess. And and then Joseph and now they're off and kept. What are you thinking, God? But God, you know, when we look at the Bible, we see that God is very wise, much more wise than we can possibly imagine. This last week I was reading in the book of Ruth and just imagine here's a Moabite who is totally apart from the covenants and promises, does not know God. She is lost. If she stays in Moab, she is lost forever. God in his wisdom allows a famine. A guy named Elimelech with Naomi and a couple guys named Sickness. And I can't remember what Cheon's name really means. They go down. They get married. They die. Right. All of a sudden now Ruth comes up into the land of the true chosen people, gets to interact with Yahweh gets redeemed by a guy named Boaz, which all over the book of Ruth seems to be a type of Christ. She's expressing kindness. He's expressing kindness. Uh, He's causing, he's telling his young men, make sure that you allow extra grain to fall to her. And then he redeems her and Naomi. Naomi's name goes from bitterness to from Mara to blessed. And I'm just sitting there thinking, it's like, God in his wisdom, this lady would have been lost without a famine, without a husband that goes down to Moab, 
without them coming back. And I'm thinking of my own testimony. I was just some white, I don't want to be offensive here. Can I say this? Kind of white trailer trash in Bakersfield. That's me. That's us. Okay, I'm speaking about us, right? I'm throwing myself under the bus, right? (laughs) We're just off there with no hope. No hope whatsoever. All of a sudden, through terrible circumstances, we find ourselves with our grandparents. Then we come down with my unbelieving dad who hires a Christian who starts preaching the gospel to us for five years straight. After five years, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord saves me, saves Michelle, saves Melissa. We were at no hope whatsoever. There's times where you could look at our testimony. If you were to drop down in the middle of a movie, you'd be like, what in the Lord? What is the Lord thinking? That's not, I wouldn't do it that way. That's not the way you do it. And yet the Lord was weaving this whole story together to save three very unworthy people. That's the wisdom of the Lord. <clears throat> and we don't always know the, I don't know what, where your story is at right now. There's, you know, you could be sitting here right now, right in the middle of terrible circumstances and be legitimately crying out with Job, like, what is going on? And God in his love and wisdom is not afraid of those kind of questions. That's the cool thing about our wise Lord is we can bring it on. He's like, yeah, bring it on. I, I know the end of your story, so I'm not afraid of the question, right? You know, God sees the end of the movie, so the question doesn't threaten him. So we can cry out with Job. We can cry out with Jesus. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ in his humanity, right, is crying out, what is going on with the plan? But yet God's plan was to save us all. And so we can trust in his wisdom. We can doubt ourselves. We can cry out to him. He loves to hear our cries and so on. We've got one we can hit one more attribute and that is God's holiness. And really with everything that we've talked about this up to this point, you could put holy as an adjective in front of every other attribute. We could talk about his holy love. We could talk about his holy wrath. We could talk about his holy wisdom, talk about his holy truth. Um, Holiness is something that really can apply to every attribute. We also talk about the Holy father, the Holy Spirit, um, we can talk about uh, Acts 4.30, the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Holy is applied to every person of the Trinity. And holiness is something that we are called once we come into Christ. We're called saints, right? First Corinthians chapter 1. So what exactly is holiness in the last minute and a half? Holiness, the idea is otherness. Otherness or majesty is the big idea. It does have an ethical overlap, purity, but mostly because of its otherness. It's different. Um, it's separate. You could look at Isaiah 6, be a great place to go. But Exodus 3 would also be another pl- great place to go. When the burning bush is there and Moses comes upon the burning bush, he says, take off your shoes, Moses, for you are on holy ground. What that tells us in the burning bush passage is that holiness is not merely defined by what we don't do. It's not like Moses was was like doing some evil thing and God saying, stop it. It's more defined by whom we belong to. He was in the presence of a holy God. So holiness is not just defined by what you don't do. It's defined by who you belong to. 
um, it's not just separated from something, but devoted to somebody. You're not just separated from something. You're devoted to somebody. When you look through the book of Leviticus, the core idea of holiness is devoted. This thing's devoted for this purpose. Right? The priests are devoted for a special purpose. The labor is devoted for a special purpose. This bread is devoted for a special purpose. And so when we talk about us being holy, it's we are devoted to God for a special purpose. Let's pray and I'll, I'll take questions up here for a while. And I'll send you guys all kinds of propaganda during the week. Lord, thank you so much for your holiness, your wisdom, your omniscience, your truthfulness. We thank you, Lord. What an awesome God you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, containing all of these attributes. These attributes are not divided. You are not a loving God at one time, wrathful at another, but it all congeals together beautifully above and beyond all that we can possibly imagine. Uh, but we thank you, Lord, for your wisdom that we can trust you completely. Help us, Lord, to believe all things in your word concerning everything and for us to hate every false way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.